Welcome to Dreamful Podcast, bedtime stories for slumber. I would like to start this episode by thanking our newest Patreon supporters, Laura Floyd and Marielle Teasdale. Thank you both so much, and I hope you have the sweetest of dreams. If you find value in Dreamful and would also like to contribute to the podcast, please visit dreamfulstories.com. We can find info about the show and on the support page, there's a link to leave a one-time donation with PayPal, get bonus episodes synced to Spotify with Supercast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or become a Patreon subscriber for bonus episodes and other perks. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Sometimes when faced with challenges in life, it can be hard to find a way out. Problems can be overwhelming, and the more you worry or stress over it, the more consumed you may become. There's no better feeling than when an issue is resolved, and a therapist can help you become a better problem solver, making it easier to accomplish goals and stress less about the problems life may throw your way. If you are thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash dreamful today to get 10% off your first month. That's better betterhelp.com slash dreamful. In this episode, I will be reading a dreamy Australian fairy tale, The Five Storytellers. So, snuggle up in your blankets and have sweet dreams. The five storytellers, who need never lack an audience, are so ancient that they seem to have existed ever since the world began. What they were first called, no one now remembers. Some think they once had names which meant faith, love, truth, knowledge, and art, but be that as it may, today they are called touch, taste, sight, smell, and hearing. Whenever they tell a story, they always begin it in the same way. As in all fairy stories, they say, once upon a time, a long while ago, and such and such a thing happened. So, when hearing began his tale, he being first to be asked, this is what he said. 
Once upon a time, a long while ago, I was standing on the rounded shore of the world, gazing into space. As I stood there, lost in thought, my attention was eventually called to a long, slow succession of sounds, like sighs, infinitely sad, but inexpressibly sweet. Whilst I was wondering what these sounds might mean, and from whence they came, at my feet, I suddenly perceived a very extraordinary looking little person, who appeared to be all head, and no body. He was looking up at me, with such a wistful expression on his face, that I felt impelled to ask him, Who are you? And what is your story? And by way of answer, in a very slow and somewhat hesitating way, this is what he said. My name is Music, though my parents call me Breve. For untold ages I've lived upon the outer edge of the earth with my father, Harmony, and my mother, Concord. Both my parents have quite an exalted opinion of me, but so far I have not come up to their expectations. I am very sorry that this should be the case, for nothing would please me better than to justify their hopes. The truth is, however, that they are so wrapped up in each other and their mutual affairs that they will not listen to what I have to say. And so, I make no progress. I am but a single sound, sighing in a wilderness. If by chance I could persuade them, or for that matter, anyone else to do what I know in my mind is the right thing to be done, I am certain I should be a success. I know, though they do not, that my head is as full of dainty melodies as a pomegranate is full of pretty seeds, and that if only my poor tongue-tied condition were remedied, so that I might use that organ as it should be used, I could release an octave. Eight little fellows who beneath my tongue are now held captive but who, if they were only free, are possessed of such astounding and never-ending ability as to be able to produce a succession of the most musical notes, the like of which have never before been heard. Here, he sighed most mightily, and then it was that I saw he rested in the opening of a shell that is called a conch. But, said I, how am I to loose your tongue? I am no surgeon, neither have I a knife or other cutting instrument wherewith to perform the operation. Besides, would you not die if such an unpractised hand as mine attempted so delicate a task? Not at all, he replied 
in his soft, slow tone. I should certainly die away, just as an echo does when fleeing into space, but it really would not hurt me, I assure you. Still feeling very puzzled, however, I sought for further information, and so said to him, But where and how did you become possessed of all these sweet-sounding notes which you claim your octave can produce with such never-ending brilliance and variety? And further, supposing I were willing to assist you in the direction you desire, having no knife, as I told you before, is there any other way in which I could safely render you the service that you seek? Instantly he brightened, and, speaking as fast as his poor tongue-tied condition would permit, this is what he replied. These notes that I am simply yearning to release, I have carefully gathered together over millions of years. They have come to me from the ocean and the breeze, and, as they came, I classified and arranged them. Over me, throughout those infinite ages, the tumbling seas have tossed and the careless winds have blown. But always, whenever a new note I heard, I promptly seized upon it and stored it with the rest. And as it is tens of thousands of years since last I added to my collection, I am now fully satisfied that there are no fresh notes to be obtained. As to the way in which you can assist me, please hold me up to the face of the wind, or, better still, blow upon me strongly with your breath, and all will be well. So, obedient to his desire, I picked him up in my two hands, and holding him firmly, blew sharply and strongly upon him with my breath. And true enough, just as he had predicted, out came eight little fellows who called themselves semi-breves, dancing and jumping about on my hands in the utmost glee. All at once, they started singing. Blow again, blow again. And so amused was I with their caperings and cries that I blew upon them just as I had blown upon Brevet, whom I thereupon let fall. In the flash of an eye, my hands filled to overflowing with any number of other little fellows who called themselves minims, crochets, quavers and semi-quavers, and I know not what beside. And they laughed such pretty rippling laughter that I felt constrained to join them. Yet, almost before I could utter a sound, some of them popped into my mouth and to my utter astonishment, I found my hard, dry laughter had become almost as musical as their own.
While still more or less amazed at this delightful discovery, a skylark and a nightingale, attracted by the sweet sounds, came up to listen to what was taking place. Here, said I, take some of these for yourselves. And I threw to each of them a few of the notes, just as they had started to speak. Both were nearly choked as the notes went flying down their throats. But when they next essayed to speak, they sang instead. And the music in their voices was of such a quality as to leave the listeners spellbound with delight. These extraordinary happenings gave me a great idea. Calling to my aid the idling winds, I said to them, Take from me these glorious notes, spread them far and wide, leaving some wherever you seek to rest, and giving some to all who care to take them. Be swift and see to it that your task is well performed. Happily, the winds were willing to obey my orders, and so, to the uttermost ends of the universe, there was taken a measure of music's notes, and to every class and kind of living thing was offered a share. A very few refused the gift, and so, spend their lives in stony silence. But, the great majority accepted, some the singers to improve their voices, others the players upon instruments, to add to the deftness of their fingers and the delicacy of their touch. Others, again, such as the nightingale, the bulbul and the skylark, to fill the night or morning with their glorious melodies to the great delight of all who pause to hear. Sight, the second of the five storytellers, was called upon to tell a tale. And this is what he said. Once upon a time, a long while ago, I stood upon a hilltop watching the rain clouds drifting past. Suddenly, a raindrop fell into the palm of my outstretched hand and lay there looking at me. He was so cool and clear, so bright-eyed and so fearless, that I said to him, Tell me, raindrop, what is your story? And why do you fall? And this is what he told me. When I was very young, and very, very tiny, I lay upon the bosom of my mother, the ocean. And many a time, when I was inclined to be fretful, because the wind ruffled my spray-like hair, she gently rocked me off to sleep. 
Then came a day when the sun held out his hands and arms to me in such a winning fashion that before I knew what he was doing, he had lifted me up and placed me in the downy folds of a fleecy cloud. At first, I felt a little frightened, especially when I peeped down at the great big moving world beneath. But very soon, I perceived that there were quite a number of us being carried by the cloud, and as we were all in the same boat, so to speak, it was not long before we became quite friendly. As the days went by, we often talked about the things over which we passed, and many a time we wondered what some of them meant. Very strangely, perhaps, the higher we were taken into the air, the better our eyesight became, until, like ocean birds, we could see right down into the deepest depths of the sea. It was, therefore, not at all difficult for us to pick out all kinds of things not usually seen from the surface of the water, or even from the top of a ship's mast. One of the first and most alluring sights we saw was a circular bed of coral, all pink and glowing in the clear, still depths of the Pacific Ocean. Later on, when crossing the Caribbean Sea, we saw enormous masses of colored seaweeds, fantastically curling their hands and arms in a never-ending variety of graceful movements. Almost immediately, there came before our eyes dark old Spanish galleons, stuffed with stolen gold, sunk by the British merchant ships, or maybe privateers, while their crews still stark and stiff in the deep, unmoving waters. Not far removed was the gallant little ship in which Sir Richard Grenville and his glorious crew fought, single-handed, a fleet of Spanish buccaneers, and, rather than yield, sank beside their guns. There they were, still resolute of pose in spite of all the years that have gone since then, and, seemingly, ready as ever to uphold the valor and the honor of the British race. Along came other sights and scenes. Southward over Africa we float, peering at the houses, the patches where they grow their crops, and the wide open spaces where the cattle roam. And, heavy now with her growing weight, the cloud just skims over the tall tops of a far-flung forest, when, full in view upon a great square of cleared land, we see a mighty host of stalwart Zulus being marshaled by their chief in readiness for war. Without the slightest warning, they give vent to a most terrifying shout. Instantly, 
a vast number of our fellow travelers, thoroughly startled, fall from the cloud to the ground, and, as it suddenly rises again, we see them running as hard as they can for the creeks and the river not far away. Turning northward, for days and days we seem to do nothing but drift and drift, the weather all the time becoming warmer and warmer. Then, just as if an intervening screen had been pulled suddenly and swiftly away, there below us lay the great desert of the Sahara. Far, far down, a thin stream of camels, heavily laden, were wending their way in the peculiar, tortuous, twisting fashion which is common to them. Upon the camels' backs were gaily colored coverings, fringed and tasseled with red and gold. On certain of the camels, in a kind of tent, rode a number of dark-eyed ladies, dressed in the most gorgeous silks and satins, their faces partly veiled, their little feet encased in dainty slippers, but always their flashing teeth and shining eyes to show that they were happy. Northward still we go, until Mount Vesuvius is reached. Oh, what a smoke and heat. I nearly dropped with suffocation. Indeed, I should have fallen straight into the great red yawning crater with its awful fires, had it not been for the soft but strong hold by which the cloud upheld me. Never again do I want to see that burning place. The very memory of it, even now, causes me to tremble. Then, not far from Mount Vesuvius it seemed, we barely succeeded in passing over such gigantic mountains that their tops are forever covered in snow, white, cold, and unutterably still. Yet, even as we gazed, dumbstruck with the wonder of it all, there came the sun's great rays, and magically, gloriously, turned the snow to gold, to gleaming gold, mountains of gold. Southward and eastward then we went, over the burning plains of India, past the Taj Mahal, that mighty monument to woman's love and virtue into the memory of a great prince. Southward to Ceylon, set within the circling seas, and then, rapidly over the ocean, back to Australia, where, glad to see and smell the eucalyptus again, I fell down to do them service. As to why I fall, it is because that is the only way in which I can do my share of the things that must be done. My chief duty is to nurture and refresh everything that grows. 
and as that can best be accomplished by falling on or about them. Therefore, that is the thing I do. When sight was finished, the third storyteller, Smell, then began his story. Once upon a time, a long while ago, I was looking for a lost baby fairy in a field of well-grown rich red clover. The day was warm, and the drowsy hum of countless bees suggested to my mind that perhaps the object of my search had fallen down and was somewhere lying asleep beneath the spreading clover. Very carefully, therefore, I pulled aside many and many a bunch of sweet-smelling blossoms, hoping to discover him. Just as I found him, I accidentally plucked a somewhat larger blossom than the rest from off its long green stem. Not exactly thinking of what I was doing, I parted the petals, and there, in the very heart of the flower, I saw the sweetest little fellow in creation. In spite of the fact that he had been disturbed in a nap, for he woke up the very moment I spied him. His face instantly wreathed itself in smiles, and he waved his tiny hand at me in the friendliest greeting imaginable. Of a truth, his whole attitude and bearing were so pleasant and affable that I was greatly taken with him and felt an immediate desire to have him tell me something of his history and his work. Indeed, so strongly was my curiosity aroused that almost before I was aware of it, I said, Who are you and what is your story? And this is what he said in answer to my question. My name is Clover Perfume, and I am one of a very numerous family. To tell you the truth, I have brothers and sisters, and all manner of other relatives all over the world. Everybody knows me, he continued, except those who cannot smell, and they would nearly give their noses to make my acquaintance. Here, he laughed so merrily that for the life of me, I couldn't help laughing too, though what it was all about, I really couldn't say. But, said he, although I'm so widely known, and, I think, very well liked, I have never before been asked to tell my story. I've just been accepted as a matter of course and nobody has been the least little bit interested to know anything about my origin or history. Here, he heaved a great sigh, and the breath that he expelled from his lungs was so divinely sweet that it filled my senses with delight. Instantly recovering himself, however, he brightly added, Still, I am very, very glad that you have asked me to tell you my story 
and if you will listen, it will be a pleasure to let you hear it from beginning to end. Go on, said I encouragingly. You will find in me a very patient listener. Well, he commenced, as you are probably very aware, when God first made man, he was nothing more than a lifeless image. He could neither move nor speak. But having fashioned him so much like himself, and being pleased with his work, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. This was the greatest of all gifts. On no other created thing was anything like so remarkable and wonderful a gift bestowed. But what you do not know is that, whilst the making of man was in progress, the trees and flowers were looking on, silent, still and breathless with amazement and surprise. Indeed, so astonished were they, so overpowered at the miracle they were privileged to see, that they temporarily ceased to grow and might easily have died. But this was not to be, for seeing what happened, God caused them to revive, and knowing that he had already fixed for them their stations and their modes of life, out of his great compassion, and because of the awe and reverence with which they had looked upon his work, said to them, Behold, I give unto you a further gift. Beauty and symmetry thou hast. In addition, take from me all those who will the gift of sweetness, that you may forever bear witness to the heirs of heaven and the glory of your Creator. So saying, into the soft and balmy air, he breathed one glorious breath, which, spreading and falling, was in the process disintegrated or broken up into a myriad of marvelous atoms. These ineffably sweet and fertilizing atoms, the trees and flowers immediately and eagerly breathed. Some more, some less, each according to its mode and manner, but all with rapturous delight. And one tiniest atom there was that, falling lower than the rest, fell upon a pale white clover blossom, who, when she drew it in, blushed rosy redness, and in perpetual remembrance of that great occasion, has ever since retained her beauteous coloring. Later on, I was born, and even as I lay in the soft and delicate arms of my rosy mother, she began to whisper to me little portions of this wondrous story. As I grew in strength, my mind acquired a better grasp of things. I finally got to understand the meaning of it all and to appreciate to the full 
how remarkably lucky I was to have been blessed with so fortunate a mother. When at last, she saw that I was fully awake to all these things, she began to confide in me the set ambition of her life, the dearest wishes of her heart. In those wishes, I am proud and happy to execute for they not only serve to indicate the loving and the gracious nature of my mother, but they are in themselves so pleasing that I have no other aim in life except to carry them out. As to what they are, you perhaps may guess. In a few words, my mother desired, above all other things in the world, that some portion of the boon, which had been so marvelously bestowed upon her, might in turn be given to all her kith and kin. And as I had been endowed from birth with the peculiar faculty of being able to transfer to others some small part of the gift of sweetness, she had been enabled to transmit to me she naturally and properly taught me how to exercise and use my talent to the utmost of my capacity. So it is then that, like a bee, I am engaged in flitting from flower to flower in order to place in the heart of each a tiniest drop of that miraculous God-given essence, which, as you have learned, was intended to be an eternal reminder of the fact that, like the sweet odors of heaven, the perfume of the flowers and trees is of divine origin. Then Touch stepped forth and began his tale. Once upon a time, a long while ago, I was passing over a field, pausing for a moment to look at a flower, a lark fell palpitating at my feet, hot and weary with singing. Taking him up in my left hand, whilst I gently fanned him with my right, I said, tell me lark, what is your story? And why do you sing? And when he was cool again, this is the tale he told me. Once I was an egg, and I lay in a tiny nest amongst the grasses of fields. The shell within which I lived was very small and somewhat dark, but warm. Occasionally, however, I could see just a little glimpse of light, and now and then I could indistinctly hear my father talking or singing to my mother, but I couldn't move and I couldn't speak. Then came a day when I thought I heard an awful crash. It was so loud and thunderous that it seemed to me as if the sky had fallen. At the time it happened, I was almost asleep, I think, for I appeared to have woken with such a sudden start that I pushed my beak clean through the shell in which I lived, broke it in half, 
and there I sat, blinking and winking at the sunlight, in the most stupid manner conceivable. In a minute or two, I saw my mother. She was looking down at me as profoundly as if I were an eagle instead of a wee little lark. Almost naked, is so weak that I couldn't stand up, no matter how hard I tried. In fact, every time I tried, I fell back so funnily that my mother laughed a little, and that made me cry. When she saw me crying, she said, Never mind, little one. You'll soon do much more than stand up. You'll fly. And now, just lie down until I go and get you your breakfast. And off she flew. My word, she was quick. I hardly seemed to have lain before she was back with it. The strangest little pinky red wriggly thing you ever saw in your life. It was so soft and juicy looking that, when she put it on my tongue, I just popped it down my throat and gave a little squeak for more. But that was a long while ago. As I grew and got some feathers, my mother taught me first to walk a little, then to run, and finally, to fly. Very well do I remember my first little flight. I could scarcely have gone a dozen yards, when down I came plop, right on my mother's back. How she got beneath me, goodness only knows but it was a good thing for me that she did. For when I saw where I should have fallen, it was right on top of an old spiky post in a fence, and I certainly would have been hurt. One day, my father came to me and said, Up you come with me, little laddie. You're old enough now to get into the air and to get your first singing lesson. I fairly worshipped my father. He really was wonderful, for on all the days when my mother was feeding me or teaching me to fly, we could just see him away up overhead, singing rapturously. And the songs he sang, the notes came raining down like dewdrops, diamonds, rubies, sapphires. They were made of sunshine, jewels, and running water. He never heard the like of them, and my mother, who loved him to distraction, would often stop in her teaching and just gaze up at him as if he were an angel. But, as I was saying, my father came to me for my first skyward lesson. How I loved it. Round and up and up and round we went until we appeared to be miles and miles above the earth. And, looking about me, at the sun, the sky, and the good green earth, all at once I knew what everything meant, and almost without knowing it, I opened my throat and sang till I dropped. Very fortunately, my father, who probably guessed what would happen, was watching closely 
in the very instant that my wings gave way. He caught me on his back, and down we came in the most graceful spirals you ever saw. Day after day we did the same thing, until at last, strong of wing, and mellow-throated as my father. He gave me the right to soar and sing whenever I pleased. As to why I sing, I can only say that everything in the world seems so good, so lovely, and so bright, that I cannot help it. Besides, I love to hear my own voice. It is so sweet. And I rather think that the angels of heaven, looking down as I often do at this beautiful earth, must find it not only easy to sing, but must simply long for the time when they can come and teach their songs to human beings, just as my father taught me his. When all was quiet again, taste, the final of the five storytellers, began his tale. Once upon a time, a long while ago, Faint and weary from the heat of the day, I sheltered myself under a shady vine. When I looked up, I saw beautiful bunches of grapes, like ladies' fingers, hanging all about me. A bunch I took and found them so delicious that I said to the vine, Tell me, grapevine, what is your story, and why do you grow such grapes? And this is what the grapevine said. My story is a very simple one. When I was a little hard white pip, I was covered with pale, firm flesh, and my green skin was as smooth as silk. As I grew older, my flesh got softer and my skin expanded to allow for my growth. About this time, the sun began to take notice of me, and in a playful way he took to patting my cheeks every time he passed. In spite of myself, I always blushed, and somehow, try as I might, I could never get rid of the blush again. The result was that the oftener I blushed, the deeper my color became. One day, he stopped to tease me about it, and I got so annoyed that I became almost red with indignation. At that very moment, a pretty little lady passing by, evidently seeing my plight, promptly plucked me from my place and popped me in her mouth. For a moment or two, I was pleased to be out of sight of the sun, but presently, I got so warm that I was glad to be taken out, even if it was only to be stared at by my tiny lady friend. It was then that I had time to notice that she had lovely blue eyes, milk-white teeth, and the prettiest little fingers in the world. 
Poor little grape, said she. I don't suppose you know I am going to eat you, but I am. What a pity you are so round and red. I wonder why you don't grow as long as my finger. You would be far prettier if you were shaped like a lady's finger, instead of like an owl's eye. And she laughed so suddenly that I nearly fell out of her hand with fright. Now, although she said that funny thing about me, I was so charmed with the way in which she spoke that I there and then resolved, if ever I got the chance, to try and grow in the shape she had suggested. But an instant after I thought the end of the world had come, for, with a smart little nip of her teeth, she cut right into my flesh, and in less than a minute, she had stripped me bare, and I lay in the palm of her hand, nearly frightened to death. Poor little seed, she murmured, looking down at me strangely. I wonder if you know what has happened to you, and whether you've got any life left. Well, you can't say, and I don't know. And with that, she blew me off the palm of her hand into the soft brown earth of her father's orchard. There I lay for many a day, waiting for something, though what it was I couldn't understand. By and by, the winter rains began to fall, and the soil about me tightened its grip. At first, I didn't like it, but I soon found out that if I wanted to be cozy and warm, I had better not wriggle and struggle, as at first I felt inclined. Oh, how good and kind I found the earth to be. For quite a long time she let me sleep, and when it was time to wake, she softly whispered, Feet down, head up, head up, feet down. And almost without knowing what I was doing, I felt myself pressing downwards with two little legs and pushing upwards with a little green head as hard as ever I could. The moment I got my head through the soil, I knew that I had done the right thing. There was the orchard I knew so well, and there too, the sun, who somehow seemed different. For instead of patting me on the cheeks as he used to do, he kept on saying, Come up, climb, climb. If you want to get on in the world, you must climb. Well, as it seemed the right thing to do, climb I did, and I kept on climbing, until one day my little lady's father stopped to examine me. Oh ho, said Mr. Orchardist, what have we here? 
a good looker right enough. I must watch you grow, my lady. And he did too, giving me regular attention, treatment and care until I began to feel that the deepest wish of my heart would be gratified. And sure enough it was, for in my fourth year, much to my little lady's delight, I began to grow a grape she had never seen before, a long and shapely grape with just the daintiest pink flesh on its delicate skin. Quite unknown to her, Mr. Orchardist had also seen what was taking place. And one day, to my intense joy, he said to the little lady, Come here, little lady, and show me your hand. And as she held it out, he dropped into it my first bunch of grapes, saying as he did so, at last, at long last, here are my lady's fingers. As to why I grow such grapes, there is surely no need to say. It is to perpetuate the memory of the sweet little lady on whose hand I saw the fingers which inspired me to imitate their dainty shape. And so ends the five stories from the five storytellers. Thank you.